Please hear now from God's Word, Matthew 28, first eight verses. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when our Lord Jesus was dead, when his clay-cold corpse laid, watched by the Roman soldiers, the seal upon the tomb, one might have thought that his mission was in jeopardy. Maybe that the mission of Jesus had died out. It seemed that every disciple that our Lord had bailed out on him, fled. Christianity may have been destroyed. But no. As we have once again read in your word, that very day, our Lord Jesus won a victory which shook the gates of hell and caused the universe to stand astonished. And so we, today, worship you, the risen Christ, and we worship you every day, waiting for you to come again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We meet every Sunday because Jesus has risen from the dead. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. Still, today is Easter Sunday, a day the church historical has designated to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord with special intentionality. For indeed, what Paul stated, and we have read several times today, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But in fact, Paul goes on to say, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of the risen Christ, we have reason to celebrate, especially Easter Sunday morning. Now back in 2001, I delivered my first Easter sermon here at Redeemer after becoming a senior pastor. In 2005, I unapologetically repeated that same sermon. Here in 2010, I will once again, with even less apology, preach basically the same sermon. And if the Lord tarries, and you're here in 2014 or so, once again, with even less apology, I promise to preach this sermon again. Now, maybe longer, but I will preach it again if God gives me breath in my lungs to do so. I got the idea originally hearing a sermon from the late great African-American preacher E.V. Hill. He preached a sermon in 1991 that I that I was there for, and I heard him ask the question, when was God at his best? And he went through the Bible and showed all the miracles, essentially, of God and, and challenged the listeners to think, when was God at his best? Well, thinking in those terms, in that pattern, I pose a different question to the text this Easter Sunday morning, and it has to do with the greatest statement God ever uttered in his word. What would be the greatest thing he ever said? There's so much in these 66 books that we have. What was the greatest statement made by God? You know, the Bible is a record of God's redemptive communication with us. 
In the Bible, well, what was the greatest statement ever made then? Let us search together to answer this question this Easter Sunday morning. Well, first, one only has to open the first page of the Bible to find what may be considered God's greatest statement. Genesis 1, verse 3. Just three verses in, maybe there we have the greatest statement God has ever made. It's the first recorded words of the Godhead. And talk about grand entrances. Genesis 1, 3. Let there be light. Surely, some would argue, this is the greatest statement ever uttered. Let there be light. When one considers what happened as a result of this utterance, one has to agree that it is surely a great statement. When God spoke, let there be light, snap, heaven's lights went on. No need for a sun, no need for solar light source. God simply spoke light into existence. Surely this was God's greatest statement. It started the whole thing. From that point, God went about speaking things into existence. By the very word of his mouth, things came into being. I know this confounds modern-day scientists. They work so hard to disprove the simplicity of divine creation. But in the end, they have no real plausible explanation. God's word stands sure. God spoke everything into existence out of nothing by the word of his power. And it all started, Genesis 1, verse 3. Certainly, you could conclude that this was God's greatest statement, let there be light. But I think not. It was great for sure. A statement to be held forth for the ages. But there's better still to come. So let's keep searching. One only has to cruise ahead 23 verses to find what might be then considered the greatest statement God ever made. Genesis 1.26. Maybe that's it. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Surely there could be no greater statement than one that declares man to be created after the very image of the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable creator of the universe. The great God of the universe says, let us make man in our image. The very pattern for man is found, according to this statement, in the mystery of God himself. How could he ever top such a statement, let us make man in our image? You know, the elephant, consider it as massive, it is mighty, it's powerful, but it is not made in the image of God. The horse is fast, powerful, royal, but not created in the image of God. The lion is an awesome creature, could kill you with one stroke of its paw, but it is not created in the image of God. Perhaps the greatest of all animals, the white-tailed deer, (laughs) whose legacy lives on in the walls of many a noble hunter. Even the white-tailed buck is not created in the image of God. But you are. You are. Mighty and powerful, this statement is, Genesis 1.26. But it's not the greatest statement God ever made. To find that, maybe we only have to go ahead to chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 15, may well be the greatest statement God ever uttered. It's hard to believe there could be a greater statement than Genesis 1.26, being created in the image of God. However, man's rebellion against the one whose image he bears throws this 
this relationship with God into a tailspin. This rebellion brings up a dividing wall of separation between God and man. We would have to say then in that light that Genesis 3 verse 15 would be God's greatest statement. He says immediately after his prize creation falls, directing his words towards Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Wait a minute. The great God, the creator of everything, when faced with a rebellion from his creation, responds with what? Grace. In response to the treason of man against God, he could have been completely in his rights to destroy man at that moment. Instead, he gives a a declaration of the gospel of grace. The promise of redemption comes in Genesis 3.15, looking ahead to the one who would come to undo the work of the serpent to bring down the dividing wall of separation. The Bible could have recorded man getting what he deserved at that moment. God could have spoken a final word of judgment and damnation when Adam and Eve rebelled, but instead the God of grace comes forth and declares war on the devil and further declares sure victory over him in the Redeemer who would someday come to crush the devil's head. It cannot be denied that Genesis 3.15, the first preaching of the gospel, contains God's greatest statement ever. After all, what could be greater than this promise of redemption? What could be greater than the first outright declaration of the gospel of grace? Glorious, great, redemptive promise for sure, contained in Genesis 3.15, but still not the greatest statement God ever made. We're still in Genesis. We go to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, and maybe there, in light of all that has come before, maybe there we find God's greatest statement. In Genesis 12, God, bent on fulfilling Genesis 3.15, he comes to a little old pagan man and his barren wife and says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Maybe his promise to Abraham is his greatest statement. He chooses a feeble old man and his barren wife to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to redeem Now, we know what happens with Abraham, so we can see, and we can say that the promise of Abraham to make him a great nation is a great statement. Abraham, hearing it the first time, what could he have thought? He had to laugh in his mind and say, how could I, an old man with a wife well beyond childbearing years, have a child, let alone father of a great nation, with whom the whole world would be blessed? But on this side of history, we know what happened. We know that God fulfilled just this. From Abraham's seed would come a great nation, and over time, the promised Messiah would come from Israel. The Christ, the one who would undo the work of Satan, would fulfill Genesis 3.15, would come from the tribe of Judah, from Abraham. Genesis 12.2 and 3, the so-called Abrahamic promise, may be the greatest statement God ever made. And it is a marvelous, powerful, 
promising statement for sure. But God has better statements yet to come. Still writing through Moses, we read in Exodus 3, verses 6 through 10, possibly the greatest statement God has ever made. We roll ahead from Abraham's day, several hundred years. Abraham has a son, he has a son, and so on. Eventually, the sons of Abraham filled or find themselves in Egypt. The progeny of Abraham reaches some two million people. Now they are a threat to Egypt's perceived sovereignty, and they're made slaves, subdued. Long after Abraham receives the great promise of Genesis 12, God reveals himself to Moses, an intemperate Israelite with a speech impediment, no less. Surely we would have to say God's greatest statement were the words that he spoke spoke to Moses from the midst of a bush that was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And maybe this verse is the best of all the, the great words spoken here. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How on earth was God going to use stuttering, stammering, cowardly Moses to free two million people from the hand of the most powerful leader on earth at that time? God speaks in a great way to a poor old Moses but in the process, sets forth clearly the way in which he is going to fulfill his promise of redemption. Certainly, God speaking to Moses from the midst of a burning bush has got to be God's greatest statement. It was great what God said to Moses that day for sure. It was supernatural how he chose to say it in the midst of a burning bush. There's no doubt. But there are greater statements still, so we push further. God promises Moses something great. Maybe we'll find God's greatest statement when he fulfills his promise to Moses. Later in Exodus 12, verse 12, maybe there's where we find God's greatest statement. Several years go by. God clearly raises Moses to a powerful state in Israel and to Egypt. He is sent before Pharaoh time and time again to tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Pharaoh's head was huge and his heart was hard. He would not let them go. But God promises Moses that he would use him to free the Israelites. And God sends plague after plague to weaken Egypt's slavish stranglehold on the Israelites, bringing the freeing of Israel from the most powerful nation in the world to a head. God speaks forth what must be considered His greatest statement. In Exodus 12, verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, 
I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God sent a bloody river already. He sent frogs and lice to sleep in the beds and the heads of the Egyptians. Now I will send death upon them, God says. In the face of all their false gods, I will declare by this mighty act that I am God. Certainly this is God's greatest declaration ever. And those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts were saved. They were passed over. God's judgment was averted because of the blood of the lamb put on the door. A hearkening back to what God promised in Genesis 3 and what would come in Messiah. Certainly these are the great, greatest words that God had ever spoken. God speaking to Egypt and Pharaoh in the greatest contest between powers ever seen. I am God. It, not I am the greatest of the gods, which Pharaoh would have surely agreed with, but I am God, the only God. Certainly, God in the face of Pharaoh must be the greatest statement he ever made. What could be a greater display of sovereignty than this? And certainly, undoubtedly, great statement of absolute sovereignty for God to make. No one would disagree, but not the greatest statement ever. So we search further. You'd think after Moses dies, God's plan or mission would be thwarted, but no. In fact, maybe the greatest statement we find isn't in the time of Moses, but rather Joshua, who comes after him to take his place. God is not beholden to any man to fulfill his plan, so he raises another, Joshua. Joshua 1, verses 2 through 9, maybe there we find God's greatest statement. He does not stop his display with his statement to Pharaoh. He only, you might say, is only getting warmed up. He calls forth another leader, Joshua. Joshua is given words of commission that some might contend are the greatest words God ever spoke. Listen to Joshua 1, 2 through 9. God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, the people of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Certainly this is the greatest statement. Assuring the Israelites military victory after military victory against opponents who had long been long standing in the land with built-up, developed militaries. The vision of Moses to see the people of God enter the promised land was grand and glorious. However, it was Joshua who would be actually led to lead the people into this miraculous inheritance. Joshua would see the vision of mission, the vision of Moses to its completion. It's true. Most great generals think God is fighting for them 
only one general was ever told so audibly by God himself. Joshua was given this promise. What an assurance. What a promise to fight for the Israelites and take over the land that God had promised. Surely you'd have to say that God's greatest statement, the words spoken to Joshua and Israel some 3,500 years ago. It's a great statement for sure. But it's not the greatest. But still keep pushing. Maybe it comes in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. As Israel was blessed by God after the time of Joshua, they occupied the land and years went on, God prospered them. They became more settled in the land. But they also sinned all the more. Yet despite their ungratefulness and multiplied sin, God had committed himself to Genesis 3.15 to bring forth a redeemer for these people from these people. The people tried to shake God's direct rule. They began to cry out. They wanted a king like everybody else had. Why do we have to listen to you directly, God? Everyone else, all the other nations have great kings. They tried to shake God's direct rule. And like a wise parent to proving a point, God gives them a king like the rest of the nations. Maybe even better. Big, strong, seemingly wise and smart. Saul fell on his face. A true picture of human power in the face of God. But then, God raises up an unlikely person to be their king. One who would become the greatest earthly king that they had known. David. Certainly the statement that God utters to Samuel about who the next king would be. Certainly this is God's greatest statement. After he goes to the house of Jesse and all these strapping, young, smart, bold sons of Jesse present themselves, Samuel thinks, surely it's one of them. And it's not. It's not at all who man would pick. In fact, he wasn't even there in the room. Samuel's confused to some degree. Who would be the king? And the Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel sixteen seven, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And he, and he picks shepherd boy David to be the next king. Well, how's that the greatest statement, you might ask? Well, it's great because it rails against all human wisdom. God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. That's revolutionary. That's extraordinary. You know, their day wasn't that much different than ours. They judge constantly by the outward appearance. How good looking are you? How skinny are you? How popular are you? How smart are you? How much money do you have? What stuff do you have? But not God. You see, God looks at the heart. And by looking at the heart, he chooses a young shepherd boy named David to rule Israel. Israel never enjoyed greater peace and prosperity than under David. Yes, part of the reign of Solomon was great. But as a whole, the kingdom was the strongest and most renowned and the name of God was most famous under David's reign. Certainly, we'd have to conclude that God's greatest statement was the one he made, that he made through Samuel, revealing David as the king of Israel. It's a great statement what God says there. But it's not the greatest statement yet. So we search further. The kingdom, of course, did not stay together. They did not stay walking in the way of the Lord. The days of the prophets came, and they were depressing. Maybe the greatest of all prophets was Isaiah, 
And perhaps in Isaiah, we find the greatest statement. Isaiah 53 may well contain the greatest statement God ever uttered. The days of the prophet, prophets came as the kingdom split. Both sides of the split languished. The north and the south struggled. They barely could maintain an identity, constantly struggling from within because of sin and threatened from without. It was no doubt difficult to remember God's promise to them in Genesis 3.15 to send one to crush the head of Satan. Here they are in this divided and declining national state. It would be tough given their weakened status and lack of unity, to imagine God's promise to them. So God sends prophets to speak to them, to preach to them, to warn them, to call them back. The prophetical books are laden with great redemptive statements in the midst of sorrow. How could you just pick one? But there is a great statement that rises above the rest, a statement so great that many might say it's the greatest statement God ever made and Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's 700 years before Jesus came. 700 years before Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. Isaiah says further, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And maybe the most powerful of all the verses in this group of great verses, Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. How could there be a greater statement than the one that tells us clearly how God is going to send the long-promised Messiah Redeemer? What could possibly be more profound? All the previous great statements which foreshadowed the forgiving of sins took on a vivid and personal form when Isaiah reveals that Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, what he would look like, what he would accomplish, some 700 years before he actually comes. He gives prophecy of his life, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Surely this is the greatest of all statements by the prophets of Israel. Better yet, maybe we can conclude this is the greatest statement God ever makes. And it's great, no question. Maybe the greatest in the Old Testament, but not the greatest in the whole Bible. God speaks more. God sends his son, God himself. And he does much speaking. We search further. Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21, maybe there. We have God's greatest statement. God remained silent for 400 years since the time of the prophet Malachi. Certainly God was present, but the sin of those 
his people, prompted God to be silent as far as revelation was concerned. According to his sovereign will, of course. But after some 400 years of prophetic silence, God breaks forth through one of his angelic messengers, communicates and makes a statement that may be considered the greatest. Matthew 1, 20, 21, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At last, finally, after thousands of years, great promise after great promise, great statement after great statement, great act after great act, God himself enters time and space and says, now is the time for the Redeemer that I promised so long ago to come into the world, and he will save his people from their sins. Certainly, this is the most glorious statement ever. Certainly, this is the greatest statement that we can see in the Bible. The advent of Christ has now been announced. The seed of the woman had come forth. The fulfiller of Abraham's promise was here. The suffering lamb of Isaiah's dreams is now on the scene. Certainly the annunciation of Christ's birth has to be the greatest of all statements. But I think not. So we push further. Maybe John chapter 3, verse 16, is God's greatest statement. God's identification of Jesus as the Messiah is most certainly great. But most contend that God's greatest statement occurs in John 3.16. So far what we have considered are great statements, but they're corporate, they're grand, big statements. Here in John 3.16, this gets intensely personal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who could possibly argue that this is not the greatest statement that God had ever made? Everybody knows this verse. You see it at football games, baseball games. Kids memorize it from the time they're little. Over and over, evangelical churches shout forth the message of John 3.16, that whosoever believes in Christ will not reap the just deserts of their sin, but rather will experience eternal life. You know, everyone who is rational fears death. Death is our great enemy, something that we cannot avoid. Yet, John 3.16 says that if we believe in Christ, we will not perish. The greatest of all messages, for sure. The very word gospel means good news. Great news. One would have to conclude that the statement of Jesus to Nicodemus and to us must be the greatest that God ever made. His personal message of everlasting life in Christ is awesome for sure. Every one of you has to consider it. But why can we believe his words? What can Jesus do regarding matters of life and death? Eternal life and eternal death for that matter. What if Jesus is just another rabbi? What if Jesus is just another Jewish prophet? Maybe even some independent sage or cult leader. What he sounds great, says what he says sounds great, but is it really great? We have to keep looking further for God's greatest statement in the Bible. Maybe in John chapter 11 we find it finally. 
John 11, verse 43. Surely every statement Jesus made was great, but one stands out in a glaring way. Some would say it's the greatest statement. Jesus returns four days after his good friend Lazarus dies. Now, by now, Lazarus' body is decaying badly. But God the Son, undaunted by the reality of biology and the process of tissue decay, after all, it is he who created everything the eye could see, has the stinking tomb of his good friend unsealed. And in the midst of this putrid smell, God the Son shouts, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. Who is such a one who could command the dead to rise? Jesus, with the word of his power, raises a man dead four days. Not a day or a couple days, four days. Certainly he is God. Certainly this display is among the greatest ever shown by God. Some might even conclude, as we might this morning, that this is God's greatest statement ever, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus rebuking death and reversing the process of decay has got to be God's greatest statement ever. Lord over even death. How could he possibly make a greater statement than an announcement of lordship over death? But he does. This isn't it. There's still more. Luke 23, verse 34, maybe that's it. Certainly raising a dead man is a miracle. No doubt great. But is it greater than going to the cross for sinners? I said, is it greater than going to the cross for sinners? When we look at the cross together, it can be argued that there we find the greatest of all God's statements. While on the cross, nails rip through the flesh of his wrists and his feet, blood pouring out his ripped up back and pierced side, birds of prey no doubt circling our Savior as he stayed nailed against that rough wood in excruciating and unthinkable pain. The mocking crown of thorns digging into his head down to the scalp, the blood in his eyes and the scorn of the crowd in his ears. Jesus cries out, not for the Father's just judgment upon the perpetrators, but rather the Lord Jesus cries out, possibly the greatest statement God ever made, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How can that be? The creator being put to death by the creation, yet his response is grace. Father, forgive them, he says. How could there be a greater statement? God the Father responds to the fall of Adam and Eve and all mankind by stating that he will bring forth a redeemer. He states that this redeemer will have to suffer and die for the redemption of his people. Now here, is that very Redeemer promised by God, God the Son himself, up on a cruel cross, being killed by the ones he's been sent to redeem, and he looks down and does not speak judgment, but rather he says, Father, forgive them. Certainly we have to conclude this is the greatest statement God ever made. And it's great, it's glorious, it's magnificent, but it's not his greatest statement ever yet. He says something just a little while later that may be considered it. John 19.30 records it for us. After uttering such remarkable words as words of forgiveness for those who are killing him, something more weighty and profound is uttered. How, how could you even say that? Certainly the words Jesus speaks before giving up his spirit must be considered the greatest statement God ever made. 
in the midst of the darkness of God the Father's judgment on the Son to pay for the sins of his people, Jesus raises his voice enough to say, it is finished. Really, what's finished? The promise of God to send a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent, it was finally and perfectly finished. The cross was the bruising of the Savior, but it was the crushing of Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. What is finished? The promise to Isaiah to send a suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of God's people and heal us by his stripes on the cross. It was finished. What's finished? All those hundreds of prophecies that predicted the coming of God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, all of them were fulfilled in Christ on the cross. It is finished, Jesus says. The work of redemption has been paid. Certainly, we would have to say God's greatest statement were those epic words on the cross, it is finished. And it's hard even to say this. But there are greater words yet in Scripture. I've just cited 14 of God's greatest statements. Yet I say to you that we have not heard the greatest yet. How can I say such a thing? We've looked at God's great statements in the Bible for sure, and we have missed many that could have been put on this list. But I contend to you this morning that the best statement in the Bible is yet to come. In order to identify God's greatest statement, remember the words we've recited repeatedly throughout the liturgy this morning. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul declares through the Holy Spirit that without Christ rising from the dead, none of the statements of God would have ever mattered because they're not reliable. Without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it simply would not matter that God supposedly spoke the world into existence, supposedly made man in God's image, promised a redeemer. If Jesus does not rise again, it doesn't matter that he used Moses to free Israel from Egypt or taught Pharaoh who the supposed real God was, or told Joshua that he would fight for Israel. Jesus doesn't rise again. It doesn't matter that he anoints David as king, or that he had, he had an angel announce the birth of the Redeemer, or that he promised to save whosoever believed in Jesus, or that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, or forgave the people who were killing him. If Jesus does not rise again, it would not matter that Jesus declared, it is finished, for it would not be finished unless he rises again. All of those statements would be a farce and empty of meaning if Jesus Christ does not defeat the power of death. All those other statements are made on the other side of the grave. All sorts of men have made many great and profound statements. But they are mere men with no power to save. For all their perceived wisdom, they all remain in their graves. We must have one who can defeat death, our greatest enemy. All these statements of God are great, but they are only truly great if God keeps his ultimate promise to raise his son from the dead. So what on earth could God's greatest statement be? Well, it must be a statement on the other side of the grave. I'll tell you what it is. Three days after Jesus hung on the cross dead and was put in a sealed tomb, he appeared to two frightened ladies on a short, just a short distance from where he once laid. 
Matthew 28, verse 9, is the greatest statement God ever made. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. That's it. Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Greetings, that's it. It's the greatest statement ever made by God. How? You're crazy. Why would you say that? That's God's greatest statement. In actuality, the Greek word that the translator shows simply as greetings is Cairo. Cairo literally means be joyful or be glad or health. Some versions say rejoice. The first words when Jesus raises and speaks to people is rejoice because for real they could rejoice. It's just words otherwise. But because he's the raised Savior, rejoice really means rejoice. Greetings. You might say that in a sense from the time God uttered the words of Genesis 3.15, all of creation held its breath until Jesus says, greetings on the other side of the grave. It may have been a common salute to that point, but not that day. The risen Christ saying greetings meant that life and eternity were forever changed. He says greetings to the women who search for him, and he says greetings to you today, for he is risen and he is alive. And all that he has given testimony to is true. Christ's resurrection demonstrates his absolute victory over death. His resurrection vindicated him as our righteous substitute, the one who would rise first, the first fruits, our representative, so we know will rise again too. He proved his authority, his divine identity. It led to his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of God, where he still rules this day. It guarantees that every believer has their forgiveness and their justification sure. Christ's resurrection is the basis of resurrection life in Christ for the believer now and forever. Our response then to this, the greatest statement God ever made, must be the same as the women who first heard. And the text says, and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Do you know the risen Christ today as your Savior and as your Lord? If you do not know him, will you not bow before him this hour and say, just as Thomas said, my Lord and my God? Let's pray. Oh, living Lord Jesus, Would you open the eyes of men and women this day that they might see, that they might detect the grand sweep and power of your testimony to yourself in your word. Oh, that you would take away the terrible blindness of people's minds. Cause each of us to bow before him and at this hour say, my Lord and my God. Pray this in Christ. Amen. Let us together respond to the word of God preached by turning to 286 and standing. We'll sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Worship Christ the Risen King.